Well, good evening. It's a pleasure to uh, open and share God's Word with you tonight. I consider this kind of my uh, church home away from home these days. I spent a lot of time up at Miller's Falls, but I always enjoy visiting here in the evenings and having the opportunity to preach the Word to you tonight. And I uh, invite you to take a little visit with me to the School of Contentment and hopefully to learn, to relearn some very important lessons for the Christian life. Jeremiah Burroughs, a member of the Westminster Assembly, Puritan pastor, wrote what I consider, many consider to be a classic book about contentment, entitled The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. He really nails it with the title. Indeed, and I hope we'll be reminded tonight, that contentment is a jewel for the soul, and he is right to observe, though, that it is a rare jewel. Uh, contentment is anything but common. That's certainly the case in the world. Uh, Isaiah, for example, in chapter 57, talks about the wicked. And he says, The wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. What a brilliant description of the unbeliever. And just that restlessness, that constant restlessness and dissatisfaction. But surely, contentment is not rare among the people of God. We surely have a much better track record when it comes to contentment. But do we? Consider just one of many possible examples uh, from the book of Numbers when God's people are in the wilderness. These are the people of God. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our, father, when our brothers perished before the Lord. Do those sound like contented saints to you? No, I don't think so. And because of that, because of that reality, which creeps into our lives as well. I think we, including myself, can always do with a revisit to the school of contentment. So I call your attention tonight to Philippians chapter 4, and I'll read verses 10 through 13. Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13. This is God's inspired word. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Please pray with me. Oh Lord, we thank you for the gift of contentment, the grace of contentment. Sometimes we are such strangers to it. We thank you that the apostle tells us that he has learned it and that we may learn it also and relearn it and continue to learn it. And so would you be our teacher tonight? Would you open our hearts? Help me to speak your word clearly. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. I'd like to proceed um, in three parts tonight. I'd like to begin 
by offering a definition of contentment, actually give you several to hang your hat on. One may resonate more with you than another. What, what is contentment? Then uh, let's walk through this passage and uh, learn lessons about contentment from the school of contentment. And then finally, the third part, I'd like to send you a home with some homework. When you go to school, you get homework, right? So that's what I'll send you away with. That is to say, some motives to continue to cultivate the grace of contentment. First of all, then, what is contentment? I mentioned Jeremiah Burroughs. Um, uh, you'll notice in the evening, under the evening order of worship, at, at the, kind of in the middle of the page, I put down um, Burroughs' definition of contentment. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. A couple of things about that. Um, Bros, I think, is quite right to talk about contentment as a frame of spirit. And what he means by that is it's not an impulse. It's not um, here today and gone tomorrow. It, it's, a, it's a settled um, uh, position of the soul. It's a disposition of the soul. And it has very much to do with God's wise and fatherly providence to which we are called to submit. Um, I think that's a wonderful definition of, um, of contentment. One that's a little simpler to understand is Sinclair Ferguson in his commentary on this passage, actually. He says, contentment is not found in creating our own security but in abandoning our security to Jesus Christ. I think that's good as well. We could substitute other words for security as well, control or um, other words we could think of, but I think uh, that's very good. Another writer named Megan Hill has a book on contentment, and the subtitle of her book is Seeing God's Goodness. I think that gets at it as well. It is seeing God's goodness in every situation. And finally, one other brief one that I came across somewhere a long time ago that has always stuck with me is contentment is dwelling gladly in the present moment, whatever the moment is. And finally, to conclude this part of the sermon, to give you something straight from the Bible, what I've given you so far are kind of theological summaries of what contentment is, but something straight out of the Bible is Paul's own example in Philippians. The whole backstory of Philippians is really a case study in contentment. And you will remember, you know Philippians, I'm sure, that Paul was in prison, almost certainly in Rome, when he wrote uh, Philippians, but lo and behold, he writes an epistle that has often been called the letter of joy. How do you figure that out? That's an exercise in contentment. When Paul is unjustly imprisoned, he's not grumbling. He does not curl up in a ball and invite everyone's pity for him. He continues in that situation to serve, to love, to praise, to worship, 
to witness. I suggest to you that is contentment. May God fill our hearts with it. And now, to move on to the second part with some idea of what contentment is, hopefully, in our minds and in our hearts. Let's walk through this, these verses, 10 through 13, and see what we can learn and be taught about contentment. Verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. You no doubt know the backstory again of Philippians, Paul in prison, Epaphroditus, a faithful servant of the Lord, had come all the way from Philippi, had nearly died on the way, got sick, but he, what was he, why did he come? Well, he brought a gift that the poor Philippians gave to Paul to help him in his needs, to help him in the gospel ministry, and the Philippians had done this several times in the history of Paul's relationship with them. And Paul, then, is expressing gratitude. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly for your gift for me. When we go to the doctor's office, the first thing they always do, my doctors do, is they take my vital signs to get those sort of basic indicators of health. One of the most fundamental indicators of Christian health is gratitude, is rejoicing in the Lord in whatever situation we may be. It's interesting that Paul uses a word that comes from botany. He says that now at length you have revived your concern. It's the idea of a flower blossoming. And Paul says, I'm very touched by your concern for me. I'm very grateful for it. I ask you, Christian, are you grateful? Do you have that vital sign of spiritual health? Verse 11, let's consider what this has to say, which some commentators struggle with because they think it's a contradiction to the gratitude Paul just expressed, and I don't think it is. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Quick reading, you almost think he's saying, but I didn't really need your gift. I didn't really want it. I, I'm, not, I'm not really that grateful for it. Uh, not that I, I really am in speaking of being in need, for I have learned whatever circumstance to be uh, content. But I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is, it's not like before your gift got here I was desperate. It's not like I couldn't live without that gift. It's not like my, um, my contentment depended on something like that. I wasn't sitting here being miserable. I'm not driven by my felt needs. And I think if there's something we need to be able to say in this day and age, that comes pretty close to it. Because everyone has learned now, we've all learned from the psychologists and whatever, that our needs are very, very important, and my felt needs are very, very important, and if we're not careful, we will just be like the character Bob in the movie, What About Bob, one of my favorite comedies, who is just obsessed with this psychologist and just goes around saying, I need, I need, I need, says Bob. Paul is saying, no, I'm not like that. I'm not driven by my felt needs. He says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. 
I think it's wonderful and encouraging <laughs> that Paul says, I have learned to be content. If Paul said, this is automatic, this is easy for every true Christian, <laughs> where would that leave the rest of us? <laughs> no, Paul says, it's not easy. I have learned this. And we can learn it also. The word for contentment is kind of interesting. It's actually a stoic word. If you took it out of context and translated it literally, it could mean self-sufficient. But of course, that's not what Paul means. We'll see that in a minute. He doesn't mean that he's self-sufficient. But I do think he's saying, I'm not dependent on what other people do for me. I'm not clinging with my needs to what they do or don't do. In that sense, he says, I have learned to be content. So what does Paul mean by contentment? Here then, we come to the very heart of it, I think, in verses 12 and 13. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What's the secret? Here it is. Here it comes. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In a word, for Paul, contentment is not self-sufficiency. Contentment is Christ-sufficiency. He has learned that in every situation, every situation, Christ is sufficient for him. It's as if prison came to Paul and said, all right, I've taken away all the things that usually give people contentment. Comfort and nice clothing and food and ready availability of friends and a warm place to sleep. I've taken all those things away. Now, Paul, is Christ sufficient for you? And Paul says, yes, he is sufficient for me. I have learned the secret. I have learned because I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He gives a, a, a little more particular example of this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. We could look at a lot of examples. I'll just, uh, just do one. Paul says, <clears throat> as he was in prison, as he was on trial, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Now, what a, what a recipe that could have been for bitterness, couldn't it? All my friends, my so-called Christian friends, they deserted me. And I was alone. Do these sound like the words of a bitter man? Not at all. First of all, through it all, the Lord stood with me. I knew that. As sure as I breathe, I discovered again the sufficiency of Christ. And not only so that Paul could be content, but that in his contentment, he could consider, continue with God's purpose for him, which was to declare the gospel to those around him. <clears throat> Sometimes I think verse 13 has been a little bit misused. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Uh, I don't think we should look at contentment as a 
calm, tranquil, unflappable demeanor at all times. I don't think it means that we should think that we will never have to cry out to God in urgency or agony. If we say that is what contentment is, then we have to throw away the Psalms and we have to say that none of the Psalms were ever content, uh, and the psalmists were ever content, and that's certainly not the case. In fact, crying out to God in agony can be a step toward contentment, right? Rather than grumbling and complaining to the people around us, how much healthier is it for us to cry out to the Lord, to cast our burden on the Lord who cares for us, and come away with greater contentment? So contentment does not mean sort of a Buddhist tranquility and unflappability or anything like that. We can be whole-souled people dealing with all the emotions of life, but we cast them on the Lord. Also, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I don't need to tell you this. But it also doesn't mean that we can leap tall buildings with a single bound. It doesn't mean that we somehow now have supernatural powers, that we can overcome every obstacle just as easily as can possibly be. No, Paul means that in Christ we can do what the Lord has called us to do. I suppose if he's called us to leap tall buildings in a single bound, he would help us to do that, but I don't think he has. But he has called us to be faithful at home, at work, with our children, with our neighbors. And as hard as that is, all of those things can be very hard at times. Throw in some health issues. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He does give me the strength to do and be what he's called me to do, discovering his sufficiency as I do it. And then to the third part of our sermon, I said homework lessons. What I'm really talking about here are our motives for contentment, and I'll just kind of give them sort of as little seeds for you to plant in the soil of your hearts and chew on them and, and let them grow. Um, but I think, I think of three things uh, especially that are vital motives for us to take contentment seriously and to follow through on what the Word has preached tonight. First of all, contentment is the cure for covetousness. Covetousness and contentment are polar opposites. And covetousness is a deadly sin indeed. And the only way to cure it is to learn contentment. For example, this, uh, this opposition is shown, just to cite one example, Hebrews 13, verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money, from covetousness, and be content with what you have. So, see what he's saying. Keep your life free from covetousness. We could plug other things in there besides just money, um, uh, other evil desires that we might have. But, but, but don't be covetous, he says. Be content. Um, <clears throat> and let me remind you that the only cure for covetousness is contentment. 
we are back to Isaiah's description of the wicked. What is covetousness? It's that restless desire to have something more, to have something better, to have something different. And those very desires can be so destructive then to our souls, to our marriages, to our churches. Why did God put me in this church? Why did God put me in this family? I can imagine a young person saying, how did I get stuck in this marriage? Oh, yes, I've heard even Christians say that. I tell you this, that just feeling guilty about covetousness won't cure it. Um, Just good intentions to not be covetous won't cure it. Some kind of teeth-gritting discipline won't cure it. The only way we can cure it is to replace it with contentment. To be content with the sufficiency of Christ and what he's provided and who he is in every situation. The second motive for contentment is to remember that contentment glorifies God. We don't like to admit this, but in our lack of contentment at times, and we're probably afraid to say this out loud, we feel disappointed with God. We're in a difficult situation. We've prayed for wisdom, and there doesn't seem to be a simple solution, and there sure doesn't seem to be a quick solution, which is always what we want, right? We want God to fix it right now. (laughs) We're all like that, I think, that disappointment with God. It's so important for us to be rooted in the fact that our contentment is not just a psychological nicety. It's not just a way of feeling better or having an even keel amid the tribulation of life. The glory of God is at stake because in our contentment, we glorify God. The classic example of that is Job. In that mysterious interaction in the heavenly council, God gives Satan permission to take away from Job everything that we typically think of as contentment, right? His house, his family, his friends, his health, took them away. And what does Satan say? Will Job serve God for nothing? Will Job serve God for no reason? And of course, Satan's being cynical, and he's quite sure Job will not serve God for nothing. He was only in it for the family and the food and the house and the health. He was only in it for that. When that goes, Job's trust goes. But Job resists the devil and glorifies God by saying, yes, I will serve God for nothing. What is he, crazy? Is he nuts? Well, according to the world, he probably is. But what Job is saying, and Job was an imperfect man, but by his continued trust in the Lord and his refusal to curse God and die, even though he didn't have the outward comforts, he is telling the principalities and powers that God is inherently worthy of trust at all times. He is inherently worthy of being trusted. And we may, as Burroughs said, submit to his wise and fatherly dispositions, even 
when it's really hard. Then finally, and really finally, the third takeaway for you in this, takeaway for me as well. Not only does contentment glorify God, and perhaps I don't even need to say this, but contentment is good for our souls. What happens when we grow in contentment? What happens when we are content? We are humbly realizing that we are not God. That may sound simple, but that's profound. We give up our pretensions that somehow we are God. And therefore, we give up trying to be in control of everything. And therefore, we can rest comfortably in the Lord, which is what he wants. Which is what he's been after in the school of contentment all along. Brothers and sisters, is Jesus Christ sufficient for you? Paul, with Job, joined by Jeremiah Burroughs, says, Amen. Yes, he is. May we continue to learn it ourselves. Amen. Let us pray. We do thank you for the rare jewel of Christian contentment, and we thank you for the sufficiency of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has proven himself to us again and again in every situation to be indeed all we need. And may we take this to heart tonight. May we cast out our covetousness and replace it with contentment. May we glorify you. May it be, as we sang earlier, well with our souls. We pray in Jesus' name.